Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilden Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. Slavery and Its Legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world. Hello, this is Tom Thurston, and I'm with Isela Gutierrez, who is the Associate Research Director at Democracy North Carolina, which is a nonpartisan organization that uses research, organizing, and advocacy to increase voter participation and reduce the influence of big money in politics and achieve a more representative democracy. Later today, Isela will be participating in a panel discussion on the right to vote, protection or suppression since 1965. Welcome to New Haven. Thank you very much, Tom. It's great to be here. Uh, could you begin by telling us a little of how you got started in this line of work? Sure. Um, I had done different kind of civil rights-oriented work prior to coming to North Carolina, uh, but I moved to North Carolina to, to attend the University of North Carolina's social work program. I received my master's in social work there, and my second year internship was with Democracy North Carolina. And uh, given my background in policy work previously, I was very glad to get back into a scrappy nonprofit working for change and um, started working on uh, research and uh, election protection for the organization, other policy issues for the organization. So could you uh, tell us a little more about the work that you and Democracy North Carolina are involved in? Yes. Um, well, Democracy North Carolina started in 1999, and um, it's done work ranging from campaign finance to um, di around disclosure, as well as public financing of elections, um, to same-day registration during early voting, uh, winning that uh, starting and winning that campaign. And then since 2011, and particularly intensively since um, 20. 13, we've been in a mode of really focusing on voting rights and ensuring access uh, to the franchise. So right now our work is focusing on, um, well, our work is focused on since 2013 and the, um, working to push back against the what we call the monster voter suppression law, uh, which was passed in 2013 post-Shelby uh, and, and dramatically restructured our, our election system in North Carolina. Um, and this year in particular, we've been focused on um, the, the photo ID requirement and other kinds of uh, election protection efforts to make sure that voters know what the rules are. They've been changing rapidly in North Carolina this year. Well, and that uh, raises a, an important issue is that every state, of course, has different uh, voting uh, laws and, and a sense of when the polls open, uh, early voting, uh, mail-in ballots. Could you just give us a, a, a brief rundown of, as best you can figure out from all the changes that have been made, where uh, uh, voting in North Carolina stands? What are the restrictions and, and, uh, and, uh, and kind of uh, ways that help to encourage the vote that are in existence? Well, it's important to understand that before, prior to 2013, North Carolina had sort of a, a Cadillac of all voting systems in the in the nation. Uh, so um, we currently have um, 
No excuse mail-in absentee voting, so you don't need any reason to, to request a mail-in absentee ballot. You can receive it. Uh, we also have 17 full days of early voting um, that before Election Day. Um, during the same the early voting period, you can also same-day register. Uh, so if you have missed the 25-day normal voter registration deadline, you can provide some form of not necessarily photo ID uh, to, to register and vote that same day. Um, we do not currently have a photo ID requirement, but that was a change that, that happened this year. Uh, you, if you show up to the wrong precinct on election day, you can still vote and your vote will be partially counted. Um, I'm trying to think of what other elements we have. Oh, and in terms of felon disenfranchisement, uh, once a person has completed his or her felony sentence, they are able to vote. Okay, okay. Uh, so what, uh, what's kind of on the chopping block as, as far as this new legislation, which, and maybe also say a little about the kind of legal status of it, because I know it's kind of moved up and then and then back down through the courts. Sure. So, um, so the voters, what we call the Monster Voter Suppression Law in North Carolina, um, House Bill five eighty nine, was passed in August of twenty thirteen. Uh, shortly after, a month after the Shelby decision came down. Um, that law, as I said earlier, dramatically restructured our election system from, a camp from campaign finance laws to voting laws, but I'm going to focus on voting laws. Um, it eliminated, that law eliminated same-day registration during early voting, which is a, it's a tremendous resource, same-day registration, and a safety net, really, for voters who may have, um, they slip through the cracks for some reason. These are correct, uh, correctly registered voters, eligible voters. There's nothing wrong with their ability to vote. Their registrations just didn't get processed. So uh, same-day registration was eliminated. Um, absentee, I'm sorry, uh, Pre-registration of teenagers, 16 and 17-year-olds were able to pre-register to vote. That just meant that their names were in the queue so that when they turned 18, they would be processed. That was eliminated. The first week of our 17-day early voting period was eliminated. And it's important to understand that that first Sunday of that week was a key Sunday for uh, black churches and their Souls to the Polls efforts. Um, so, uh, and then in two, the out of precinct voting provision was also eliminated, and all. And then the photo ID provision was um, developed, and it was a very strict photo mm -hmm. ID uh, requirement. Only five IDs would work, um, and. Uh, in the development of that law, North Carolina lawmakers sought out data about which kinds of voters used which methods of voting. Um, and the kinds of voting, the types of voting that they eliminated in that law were types of voting that were disproportionately used by African American voters in North Carolina. Right. Um, and, and in fact, methods of voting like same-day registration that really helped increase black turnout in North Carolina. Um, these are also, also methods of voting that were used pretty disproportionately by young people. So that, that's what happened in August of 2013. Uh, most of the law, except for the photo ID requirement, was set to go into effect uh, in 2014. And then photo ID was set to go into effect in 2016. Um, the legal challenges to the law began in, um, well, you know, cases, of course, were filed immediately, um, but the actual trial on the merits began in July 2015. 
Um, and it, it took a we, it took a while. Uh, the result was, I think, a, a thousand page uh, court record. But um, we uh, ultimately the trial court found that there there was not a problem with the law. It did not negatively impact African American voters from the trial judge's perspective. Right. Um, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, fortunately, from our perspective, disagreed. Um, they overturned the trial court's decision in July of this year, late July of this year, and struck down the entire, all of the provisions of the law that had been challenged. Uh, so, again, that was the elimination of same-day registration, the elimination of out-of-precinct voting, the elimination of pre-registration of teenagers, um, and the the elimination of, I'm sorry, the addition of photo ID. Uh, so, so where we are right now in North Carolina is that we're, our law has been restored to 2012, um, the, the state it was in in 2012 prior to the passage of this law. So we've got all the great tools that we had before to help increase turnout and help get people to the polls. And we don't have the restrictive photo ID requirement that was in place um, in, May, in March of this year for our primary. So you mentioned that this monster legislation all occurs just within months after uh, the Shelby decision. Could you, just for our listeners, say a, a little about Shelby, how it affected the Voting Rights Act, and, and why it matters? Sure, yeah. The, the, so the Shelby decision uh, essentially gutted um, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which was the preclearance section. What the case actually did was invalidate Section 4, which was the formula that gave Section 5 its teeth. So Section 5 um, uh, provided for the federal government and the DOJ, it required them to pre-clear any voting changes that were made in states with histories of discriminatory uh, voter restrictions. And so North, 40 of North Carolina's 100 counties were covered by the VRA, which meant that any statewide changes to the to – the, um, to voting laws in North Carolina had to be pre-cleared by the Department of Justice or a federal court. Um, so there were versions of a, of a voter ID law that had been floated in the North Carolina General Assembly in prior to Shelby. Uh, they were fairly innocuous, nothing too concerning. We were opposed to them, of course, but they were nothing like what came out a month after the Shelby decision. And following that decision, um, actually, Senator Bob Rucho, one of the Senate leaders in North Carolina, came out to say, well, now now that the, the VRA, now that preclearance is gone, we can now move ahead with the full bill. Um, Democracy North Carolina and our partners didn't quite know what that meant, but learned uh, pretty quickly when um, a committee substitute was introduced that was that would become H589, this 57-page uh, bill, 44 provisions that overhauled all of North Carolina's election law. Uh, and assuming that they're not going to come out and say that the reason for these new laws is to restrict uh, the African-American vote or the Hispanic vote or the vote of young, young people, what rationale do they give for this raft of, of, of new restrictions? Well, the primary rationale initially was voter fraud, a concern about voter fraud. So, um, but I would like to say that what, what we've seen in North Carolina across the board uh, policy-wise is a strategy of um, 
raising some kind of specter, a fearful specter, in this case voter fraud, um, and then crafting a bill that does much more than just address the alleged problem. So that's exactly what we saw with H589. The alleged problem was in-person voter fraud, and photo ID would prevent against that. Of course, that is extraordinarily rare. It is by far the hardest form of voter fraud to commit. The most likely form of voter fraud is uh, via absentee ballot, and that was actually a method of voting that the the H589 expanded uh, because the folks who used H589 tended to be white Republican voters as opposed to black Democrats. Um, So voter fraud was the reason, um, but... As the the trial went on and there was increasing pushback against voter fraud and, you know, how infrequently it happened, uh, the leadership of the state um, started saying, in fact, it it wasn't – it's not that it was racial, it was political. So they didn't deny attempting to restrict the voting um, access of some people. They just insisted that the voting access they were trying to restrict was not African-American access, per se. It was Democratic access. Uh, so they were, they were trying to keep Democratic voters from voting. And the backdrop to all of this is that uh, in, in 2010, North Carolina's General Assembly uh, became Republican for the first time in uh, since Reconstruction, and so there was a, a shift in the leadership and the orientation of the leader of that leadership toward voting. Um, and then in 2012, we elected a Republican governor, and so you you had an entire state uh, structure that was pretty focused on trying to make sure that their voters could vote and other voters uh, could not. Now I know that. So those are the special circumstances for North Carolina, but it seems to me that. Just nationwide, uh, in the last five or ten years, uh, so even before Shelby, there's been this a slew of, uh, of of voter suppression laws. I think of Ohio, for example, and what's going on there. What, uh, in your mind, accounts uh, for this? Well, I think it is connected to the question of. Um the party the party in power attempting to limit access to voting to only pe- people who they think will vote for them so um of course in 2010 we saw um a lot of state legislatures uh, go Republican, and um, and I, if you track the that that shift politically, I think you also see that's where those voter suppression laws are emerging. Of course, after and so I think you know from 2010 on, you do start to see a lot of voter ID laws being passed. For example, I will say that the devil is really in the details with voter ID laws. Um, we use the word voter ID, the term voter ID, pretty liberally. Um, but in some states, like ironically in Mississippi, the Secretary of State had tremendous latitude to add about 10 or 13 different kinds of ID that could work. Whereas in North Carolina and Texas's and, and law um, initially, uh, there were only these four kinds of IDs that could work. Texas actually had five, including a gun license. And there was no option for a voter who showed up without one of these forms of photo ID. So um, so we did see a slew of restrictive um, laws happening post-2010. Um, not all are as bad as others, um, even though many of them go under the same moniker of voter ID. And... Um, 
I and then of course we saw a lot of movement in the southeast around um, voter suppression following Shelby. And I'd say about Ohio, the recent uh, what I understand to be the issue in Ohio was around this question of the Golden Week, access to Golden Week, which is essentially the same as same day registration in North Carolina. It's an opportunity for voters to go vote after the 25 or 30 day deadline has passed and go register and vote at the same time. And again, it's this opportunity for people who might be disengaged from the political process or very engaged in the political process and just had some kind of problem um, or people who move frequently. Um, that Those are the folks who tend to, to use same-day registration the most and similarly, Ohio's Golden Week. You know, I can... I can understand how, uh, from a political standpoint, uh, there's a certain logic to making uh, it more difficult for uh, the party uh, out of power to regain power. Uh, but it this also, to me, and maybe it's just uh, 2016 and everything surrounding uh, the current presidential race, but it seems to be... Uh, tapping into uh, real deep cultural fears about uh, the country changing and a sense that uh, that uh, that that white people need to do something to hold on to power uh, is this uh, do you have any thoughts on that is this do you see this in in the rhetoric uh, in North Carolina well it's certainly true that uh, I mean North Carolina has this legacy of um, white North Carolinians attempting to prevent black voters from being able to vote. So there, there's no question that 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 um, in North Carolina, the attempts to limit the black franchise have been forthright in the past. <laughs> um, and I think that and from Democracy North Carolina's perspective, things like same-day registration and making it easier at the national level, the National Voter Registration Act, making it easier for people to access the vote um, is critical to changing the demographics of people who vote. And so there is resistance to to that, um, resistance to having what I like to call more of a carnaval effect, you know, making democracy really um, alive as opposed to just about the, you know, who, however many people you have on the list come 25 days out and getting 51% of them to vote. So um, there, I, I think that, uh, and I would, I'll, I'll add that in North Carolina, of course, there are black African Americans in North Carolina are Democrats. They are not Republican voters. There are very, very few black Republican voters. Right. And that's part of what the Fourth Circuit found in their decision was that even if the alleged motives are political, if the effect is to deny voters of a certain race their franchise, then it's not acceptable. And so um, that's in the, in North Carolina. And I'd say that the rhetoric, you know, we've had racially charged rhetoric in our elections and racially charged dynamics in our elections for a very long time. Those are the dynamics in North Carolina for sure. Um, so I, I think... Yes, there is a certain logic to the to the claim that um, you know you want to keep the, your party in power if they're in power, but there's no denying that it, it is racialized. And in North Carolina, we've got this real shifting demographic demographic shift as as we have in all the Southeast. It's often referred to as the New South, where you've got Asian American communities growing, Latino communities growing, and then African Americans voting in larger numbers than before. Uh, so, 
so yes, I think that there is a lot of anxiety among, um, at least in North Carolina, the current party in power about what happens if everyone is able to vote. Um, and there's no question that the rhetoric in this election really is, seems to be um, manifesting all of the 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 Tea Party orientation and all of that anxiety that really started springing forth um, largely in white communities in the U.S. after Obama's election. So, um, and, and we're seeing increased increased action activity in North Carolina around voter intimidation and um, just this almost a, a populist approach to trying to restrict voting. Right. And have you had any uh, signs of that, uh, a kind of get out and uh, kind of calls for not poll watchers, but people to, to get out and challenge uh, voters at the polls? Have you heard of those sort of incidents? So Democracy North Carolina, in conjunction with our partners, um, runs the election protection hotline during early voting. So right now, uh, if you were to call 866-OUR-VOTE uh, and hit the appropriate number for North Carolina, you would reach the Democracy North Carolina office. And so, yes, we, we've heard, and again, you know, North Carolina has this history of um, charged racial dynamics around voting and access to the franchise and power, but uh, typically uh, early voting has been a pretty quiet period. So what we've seen is more action, particularly in eastern North Carolina, um, more of this sort of an attempt to push back against um, the potential for fusion politics, white and black folks working together. In Nash County, um, an, an older white man was working with a younger black woman. They were doing partisan work. They were d distributing Democratic Party literature. And uh, a voter standing in line spat a wad of tobacco onto the, um, the white man's shirt. Um, and, you know, they didn't actually see it happen, but they noticed it after, you know, while they were still doing that work. And uh, the, the gentleman, whose name I can't recall right now, uh, said, you know, I'm, I'm confident this happened because I was associating with a black person, but I'm 75 years old and spit wipes off. I'm not going to let this stop me. Hmm. Um, we also, in that same county, Nash County, saw some Clinton signs slashed um, and replaced with Trump signs. Uh, we've had a bus that's on a national tour, but has chosen North Carolina as one of its nest stops. Um, mm. That and various other vehicles saying that you know everything that Hillary Clinton stands for is a sin, and uh, if you vote for her, God will hate you and hate America and that kind of stuff. And focusing on uh, talking about um, abortion and that that this is really an attack on Black communities and. Um, and then we have also we've seen a, some isolated incidents of, of um, poll watchers recording voters coming out of church vans to go vote. Uh, but I'm happy to say that in that case, in particular, election officials moved very quickly to correct that that man's actions and to let him know that wasn't appropriate. Uh, but we are seeing those kinds of things. And of course, Roger Stone with StopTheSteal.org. Um, it's been all over the news, has announced that he'll be having uh, poll watchers doing exit surveys outside of predominantly um, black precincts across the, the country. And Charlotte and Fayetteville, North Carolina, were both identified by him as two cities where he plans to put his um, exit pollers. So um, 
we are anticipating a lot, a busy election day. Um, and we, Democracy North Carolina has also been doing election protection work, uh, putting poll monitors out on the ground since 2014 statewide. So again, we'll have folks on the ground this year. We're, we're going to field about 1,000 uh, lay monitors and probably about 200 legal monitors this round. So um, we're hoping that – we're actually hoping that everything is very quiet and that this is all just a bunch of bluster <laughs> um, and that it's a boring day for our poll monitors. But we're also taking the um, the threats very seriously. Yeah, right. And I'm glad you point all this out. I think we tend to forget uh, in our focus on on uh, legislative maneuvers that, that pure voter intimidation is uh, a tried-and-true method of suppressing votes. Um, so uh, what's your hope for the future? I mean, what? how do you kind of uh, resolve this? Is Can you overturn Shelby or uh, how do you kind of reconstitute the VRA? Well, the hope for reconstituting the VRA lies in Congress right now. Um, the the um, the Shelby decision doesn't mean that the VRA is dead. It means that the formula that was um, giving teeth again to the to Section Five has been found invalid. So Congress can act and can recreate a new formula, uh, a new um, way to decide which states require preclearance and which states do not. And there's been a big push ever since the Shelby decision, a bipartisan push to try to get Congress to pass a new voting, uh, a restored, a new Voting Rights Act with a new formula that includes some additional and uh, different protections for the 21st century. Um, but that hasn't gone anywhere. Uh, uh, so um, here we are. So I think, you know, if Congress could act. That would be the first and clearest step. Um, and then lots of groups like mine and all over the country, legal teams all over the country are trying to, to push to challenge these suppressive voter laws and have had um, success. R- right now with a Supreme Court that is one member short, the decisions of those lower courts are by and large standing. Um, if people want to learn more about about all this or get involved in in groups similar to Democracy North Carolina. Do you have any suggestions where they might go to? Yeah. um, The Brennan Center for Civil Rights is a great place to to go check out. Uh, They have lots of great information about voting rights issues and voter suppression. Other organizations you could uh, look at are the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Um, They lead the election protection effort nationally. and in North Carolina, if you'd like to learn more about the work that we and our partners do, I'd suggest looking at Democracy North Carolina's website, democracy-nz.org, or the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. Well, thanks so much, Cicela. We'll be sure to have links on our website to all the uh, sources that you mentioned. Uh, so I'm going to let you go. I know you have to rest up for the panel discussion later this afternoon. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Slavery and its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, a part of the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Production support is provided by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.